Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 23rd of March, 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson. Myself, Brian Gerrish. We're delighted to be joined by independent journalist Taylor Hudak. And we are also joined by uh, Debbie Evans, the UK Column nursing correspondent. Uh, well, we'll get kicked off with uh, Rishi Sunak then, because he, uh, of course, is uh, giving the spring statement, uh, well, as we speak, in fact, and uh, he was uh, going to talk about what he's going to do about cost of living, and we're going to talk about that in a second, uh, but uh, suggesting that fuel cut tax might be cut by 5p. Do you think 5p a litre off the cost of a uh, litre of fuel is going to make any difference, Brian? Well, no, it's, it's a sop, isn't it? It's what's going on. They're manipulating the oil prices to put people under pressure and make vast profits, and then you give a little sop back. That's the way it works. So national insurance is due to rise by 1.25 pence in the pound. And, uh, well, there's maybe a, perhaps a possibility that the threshold for that will be raised a little bit. Uh, but uh, this was what uh, Rishi didn't say this morning when he was talking about this. Uh, we're screwed. Um, and that's really the, the problem because uh, the UK government uh, is got a massive gov uh, deficit at the moment. So inflation has pushed up the debt repayments. Uh, so February's deficit came in at £13.1 billion. Uh, the forecast for the, for the government deficit was uh, £8.1 billion. Uh, and of course, Ofgem also said uh, a day or two ago that UK households are going to have to pay £2.4 billion uh, to cover the cost of the failed energy companies from last September, October time. Um, so speaking of uh, inflation, uh, Office for National Statistics has the latest uh, numbers out. And here's Grant Fitzner, the chief economist, saying the price of goods leaving UK factories has also been rising substantially as now at its highest rate for 14 years. Uh, it's not a UK only problem. Uh, so UK, Germany, France, EU, United States figures on screen at the moment. And you can see uh, that from February 21, uh, this is not a Ukrainian problem. Uh, this is a, a problem that has been sitting there for quite a long time. Um, and uh, as a result, commodities prices uh, absolutely uh, going nuts. This is uh, Yahoo. No, <laughs> Yahoo Finance's coverage of this was quite funny. They were really particularly concerned about the supply chain problems for chips for KFC Singapore. That was their main problem there. Uh, KFC couldn't get their chips to go with their chicken. Uh, but uh, perhaps Bloomberg had a slightly better take on it. The world's biggest commodity markets are starting to seize up. Um, so they're saying that uh, lack of liquidity is paralyzing some of the commodity markets. Uh, uh, they're saying that starting from the nickel market, uh, in which two of the world's biggest trading companies uh, have come close to bankruptcy, uh, the, they're saying that uh, there are signs of contagion as trading in other metals also slumps. Uh, that's bad news for manufacturers and end users that could leave them exposed to more violent price swings. Yes, indeed. Uh, but really, this is what it's uh, going to be about for most people around the world, certainly in the developing world. Uh, wheat prices soaring. Well, this is a Reuters article, or I think this is a Reuters article that uh, Cyprus Mail has uh, reprinted. Uh, wheat prices soar on Ukraine fears, but of course, it's, it's nothing to do with Ukraine, really, in the sense that uh, this inflation has been building for many more months uh, than the Ukrainian conflict. And as a result of the uh, cost of, uh, you know, food, uh, raw materials, and also fertilizer and so on, uh, here we had 150,000 farmers, ranchers and hunters in Spain uh, absolutely campaigning against this situation. The government's not doing anything about soaring prices. Governments 
we should make clear can't do anything about soaring prices because this has been this is the result of the money printing that has been going on since 2007. Yeah, and note, of course, in this um, uh, free press news report, it's exacerbated by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So yes. the propaganda drifted in there. Yes, absolutely. But don't worry, Rishi is going to come riding to the rescue because during these uh, challenging times, it is vital that every single penny of taxpayers' hard-earned cash is being spent well. Uh, the current level of waste across government is simply not acceptable, which is why we're doubling down on wasteful spending and launching an efficiency drive to make £5.5 billion worth of savings. Uh, really? I don't think so. Well, I don't, I don't see it. Money appears if it's a cause that the government wants to get involved with. That is the point, Brian. That's perfect. That is exactly what I was hoping you would say, because that's exactly what's going on here. These £5.5 billion worth of savings are there to drive through uh, digitization of various uh, government agencies, yeah. the courts and various other things. So they're going to save money by spending money. Yeah. And let's not forget that Rishi Sunak is married into a billionaire's family. So presumably he doesn't suffer the same concerns that the rest of the UK population do. I don't think he has any worries about how much uh, his cornflakes are going to cost. No. No. Um, OK, let's move on to online safety then. And of course, uh, Let's have a look at this first. This is from Google's Australia blog, uh, ensuring age-appropriate experiences. Uh, they are basically saying that you're now required to sign up using a credit card or other similar uh, evidence that you're over 18. Um, this is YouTube. Uh, this is their help. Uh, to give an age-appropriate experience on YouTube, uh, content that isn't suitable for viewers under 18 is age-restricted. What age-restricted means for viewers uh, you're not viewable, the videos aren't viewable if you're signed out, if you're uh, 18 years uh, younger than 18 years of age, and if you're watching YouTube videos embedded on most third-party sites. Um, so if you're in the EU, uh, the European Economic Area, Switzerland or the United Kingdom, because the U UK has left uh, the EU now, so of course the rules are different. Yes, right. Uh, in line with Audiovisual Media Services Directive, uh, you may be asked to verify your date of birth to watch restricted videos, including video sharing platforms. Uh, follow the prompts to submit an image of valid ID or credit card uh, about how, learn more about how age restriction works and so on, right? But if you're in Australia, uh, there is the Australian Online Safety Brackets Restricted Access Systems Declaration. Uh, and that declaration requires platforms to take reasonable steps to confirm uh, that users are adults in order to access content that is potentially inappropriate to viewers under 18. Uh, so this is uh, a new declaration. Here it is. Uh, it was published in January this year. Um, and it sort of goes a small proportion of the way to where the UK is going with the online safety bill. It's one particular aspect, of course, uh, is, is the age verification uh, side of it. Um, so this scheme contains provisions for a commissioner to issue different notices to internet services, including notices for search engines to, to delete links uh, and for app stores to remove links if they're deemed inappropriate. So there's a, absolutely a censorship aspect to this. It's not just about age verification, although Google is, uh, you know, in their blog post was, was making a, a big deal of the age verification part of it. Yeah, and of course, it's not just coming in in this form because we've got, for example, banks at the moment that are asking uh, not just for an image of you, but they want a video clip of you speaking at the same time. So you've got voice recognition coming in with the uh, with the images as a means of identifying you. Okay, 
more and more people in the UK starting to notice um, the online safety bill. Here's uh, the conversation. The headline is online safety bill, ambiguous definitions of harm could threaten freedom of speech instead of protecting it. Well, look, we've been talking about the ambiguous definitions within the uh, draft online safety bill for about two years. Um, so I'm glad people are starting to catch up. Uh, here is TechDirt. Uh, the UK online, online safety bill would be a complete and utter disaster for an open internet. Uh, yes, it would. But I uh, just want to remind everybody, if you didn't see Friday's uh, UK column news, uh, please go and have a look at it. The first half of the program is about the online safety bill uh, and the implications uh, for journalism and for uh, censorship. Um, and I have to say, you know, we, we, we've begun covering this topic. It is a massive bill um, and uh, there's lots more to say about it, not least for anybody that's running any kind of online forum. Yeah, and I, I'd just like to add, I was watching that uh, news. You were in the studio with Patrick Henningson, but you did a really excellent job, Mike, of dissecting it and showing people what the dangers were. So encourage people to watch uh, last Friday's UK column news. Uh, and of course, the online safety bill is all about censoring voices that uh, the UK government doesn't like. But uh, one voice that the UK government particularly doesn't like is uh, Julian Assange. So I'm delighted to say we have Taylor Hudak with us today. Uh, welcome to the programme, Taylor. Um, and uh, well, it's a special day for Assange in a sense. Yeah, thank you for having me. Today is a really special day personally for Julian Assange and his fiance, Stella Morris. The two of them will be getting married today. I believe this ceremony is actually taking place right now, uh, 1 p.m. in the UK. And this is a prison wedding. So of course, this is not ideal. Perhaps this is not what Stella Morris and Julian Assange had in mind. But this is really a special day. And it's an opportunity to once again, shed light on this case, which is posing a serious threat to press freedom worldwide and also human rights. So I see on the screen here, um, this is from an article uh, from the Daily Mail. Uh, this was initially released uh, with the announcement that the two of them were finally given a date uh, to be married. Um, I just want to highlight some of the the conditions that Stella Morris is going to be facing as she goes through with this wedding in Belmarsh prison. And it says here in the article in Daily Mail, it says, before she says, I do, the bride will be searched multiple times, including inside her mouth, behind her ears, under her feet, and in her hair. She will pass through security scanners and be checked by a metal detector and possibly sniffer dogs. So, of course, as I said, these are not uh, the greatest of conditions. And there's also been uh, quite a bit of dispute and conflict taking place between the Ministry of Justice, the prison authorities, and really scheduling uh, this wedding. It's been going on for several months now that they've been trying to secure a date. And it's finally here. And I think that there's also another really important quote from Stella Morris, where she says, we are choosing to take control of our lives. We're doing it for love, for each other, for our sons, and because Julian's life has been put on hold for long enough, robbing him of years with his family, and that is unacceptable. So for everybody listening right now, just to remind you all, Julian Assange has been in some form of detention for the past 10 years, and he's spent almost three years now in Belmarsh Prison, which is of course 
the worst prison in the UK and what he could face in a US prison is even worse. And unfortunately, just moments after or a few days after the announcement uh, was made that the two of them would be getting married today, uh, we learned, unfortunately, that the UK Supreme Court is not going to allow for Assange to appeal the high court's decision, which paved the way for him to be extradited to the United States. So there's a little bit of a legal setback here, and I could get into the details a little bit later. But first, I do want to really touch on the human element here. We haven't really heard from Julian Assange. We sometimes hear from his family, but we don't really get to see much of him. And I think it's important to really reiterate that this is a human being who has been suffering tremendously. And I had the opportunity back in June of 2021 to actually sit down with his father and his brother. And I just spoke with them about what it's been like to see their family member be persecuted by so many governments and face 175 years in a US prison. And so I do believe we have that clip ready to go um, here is Gabriel Shipton. This is Julian Assange's brother speaking about what it's been like for him to see his family member go through this experience. I think it's very important to talk about the broader press implications here, but it's also important for people to realize that Julian Assange is a human being. You are his brother, Gabriel. What has it been like to see your brother go through this experience and be prosecuted by the United States for publishing, of all things? I think, you know, I can, it's, you know, at times, you know, it's, it's, I guess, you know, I can talk about when I went to see him at, at, in, in 2019, you know, he was, he was just, you know, he'd been in the, in the prison in Belmarsh for not, not, not so, so long. Uh, he was in the health ward there. Um, uh, he was on suicide watch. And, you know, but at that time when I went to see him, um, that was very, very hard. Uh, I had I'd never seen, you know, Julian in a state like that before, even uh, even during all his time in the embassy, and and it was really heartbreaking, uh, you know, as as to see to see someone who you know I've looked up to, um, you know, who who I have so much respect for, and and you know has been um, you know so supportive to me to 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 be in a you know in that sort of um, state where I thought that you know I might not I might never see him again. So um, I think in that way there there are those moments when when you know it, it's really hard. But there's also uh, you know a lot of I feel a lot of uh, you know I'm very proud of the work that Julian's done as well. And and I think is sort of so so unique and one of a kind that um, you know I feel a deep sense of uh, you know uh, I am just very proud of my brother basically. So as you can see there, this certainly has taken a toll on Julian Assange and on his family. But another important point to highlight is the fact that his family is so proud of him and uh, proud of the work that he has done and WikiLeaks contributions to journalism. If anybody has any doubt in their mind whether or not Julian Assange is a journalist, I would uh, encourage you all to just, you know, think about how many awards this man in WikiLeaks has won. Uh, he's won so many awards for his journalism and WikiLeaks has a 100% track record in accuracy, which uh, 
really speaks volumes to the, the work that is uh, being done by this organization, WikiLeaks. But I wanna move on now and provide you all with an update on this case. As I mentioned briefly earlier, unfortunately, uh, things are not uh, going in a great direction for Julian Assange. As I said, he is still in Belmarsh prison right now and the UK Supreme Court is refusing to uh, hear this case on appeal. They uh, did not grant permission. There's very technical legal aspects as to why they are not going to hear this case. But uh, there was a statement released by Bierenberg Pierce solicitors, and these are uh, Julian Assange's lawyers. And they said um, in this statement that they regret that the opportunity has not been taken to consider the troubling circumstances in which requesting states can provide caveated guarantees after the conclusion of a full evidential hearing. So essentially uh, what happened was is that the judge decided, the series of judges on the high court decided to allow extradition because the United States provided these assurances related to the prison conditions Assange would face if extradited to the United States. And these assurances came after the full evidential hearing. So the question was as to exactly at what point during extradition proceedings can a requesting state issue assurances. And so this is a very technical aspect to the case that's been sort of um, discussed within the court system at this time. But right now, the case essentially is being remitted to Westminster Magistrates Court, and then it will be referred to UK Home Secretary Preeti Patel, who will either approve or reject these, this extradition request. Many people are writing letters to her, encouraging her to not approve this extradition request based on human rights grounds and also the broader press implications at stake here. And one thing that I could say about this case, I've covered it extensively, and even one of the lawyers said this during uh, one of the recent hearings, is that nothing is normal about this case. And that is absolutely true. There is nothing normal about this case. It seems that almost every few weeks, something else comes out that's even more unusual, whether it be the star witness for the US prosecution who happens to be a career criminal, or if it's the fact that the CIA, which is, of course, the intelligence agency of the requesting state, had plans to assassinate Assange. Um, nothing is normal about this case, but it's important today. You know, it's a good day for him. He's, he's getting married, but it's also uh, really key that we remember what is at stake, and that's human rights and overall press freedoms. Right. Thank you very much for that, Taylor. I mean, uh, the what are the time scales at this stage? When do you think uh, he is, or when do people consider he is likely to, to end up with a, uh, you know, some kind of result either way? That's a really good question. This has been dragging on for a long time, which was something we already uh, knew would happen. This would take several years, but again, he got arrested on April 11th of 2019. It's now been three years. We're in the the appeal phase at this time. And uh, essentially, Assange's legal team does have the option to appeal 
the original January 4th, 2021 court decision on the certain elements in which the lower court judge did not rule in his favor. So just to kind of explain a little bit what I mean here, the judge initially, the lower court judge at the magistrate's level ruled against extradition on very narrow grounds. She found that it would be oppressive to extradite Assange and she cited specifically section 91 of the UK Extradition Act of 2003, where it states you cannot extradite someone uh, to a requesting state if that would be oppressive to that individual for um, any health reason. And she found um, that it would be oppressive to extradite him. And in fact, another point I must bring up here is that the high court judges did in fact uphold the lower court's decision and they upheld this ruling. But the reason for the reversal of this decision to allow the extradition was based solely on U.S. assurances, which can actually be reversed by the CIA, the very entity which plotted to assassinate Assange. And Amnesty International has even stated that these assurances are inherently unreliable, I think is the exact phrase they use, inherently unreliable. And this, um, it's really remarkable that uh, UK judges would take the United States at its word with these US assurances because the United States has broken these assurances in past extradition cases. So they're really not worth the paper they are written on. There's also another uh, clip here. You know, I mentioned Stella Morris, Assange's uh, fiance. She is also a lawyer. She also speaks very well to how this entire case has impacted her and uh, her family. She has two young sons with Julian Assange. So why don't we play that clip for everybody listening and watching right now? This is Julian Assange's fiance, Stella Morris. This clip is not too recent. It's from August of 2021, but here she speaks about the impact that this case has had on her personally. The constant threats and intimidation that we have endured for years, which has been terrorizing us and has been terrorizing Julian for over 10 years. The threats against me, threats against our children, threats against death threats against Julian's old eldest son, Daniel. Threats on Julian's life, threats of a 175 year prison sentence, and the actual ongoing imprisonment of a journalist for doing his job. These are sustained threats to his life for the past 10 years. These are not just items of law. This is our lives. We have the right to exist. We have a right to live. And we have a right for this nightmare to come to an end once and for all. So yeah. that was Stella Morris, yes, the fiance of Julian Assange. Well, I'm sure, uh, hopefully, a wife by now, um, indeed. Yes. Yeah. But a, tr a tr utterly tragic situation that somebody should be put in prison for that length of time. And what a reflection on the UK that stands on the world stage lecturing 
countries like Russia on democracy and the rule of law. It's complete hypocrisy. And if the Daily Mail's comments about the search, the searches that she would have had to endure going in to see him, I have been into high security prisons to visit people. I've been into high uh, security psychiatric units to visit people. And I've never been subject, subjected to that uh, level of search. So clearly the state is terrified of this man. Why? Presumably he's been telling a lot of truth. Mm. Okay, so, Taylor. That's a great point. Yes, go ahead. Oh, just quickly. I, I want to say that's a great point uh, that you bring up because as I mentioned, there's been a lot of difficulty with securing this wedding date. And there's also difficulty with... Um, booking a press photographer to take photos. And it seems as if there is a real concern from the prison authorities, the Ministry of Justice. They do not want people to see Julian Assange as a human being and to empathize with him or feel sympathy for him because they're doing everything that they can to ensure that images from their wedding can't even be taken. They claim that this is going to pose some sort of security risk um, to the prison. It's, it's completely ridiculous. Thank you for covering this case and bringing it to the light again on this uh, very special day. For everybody listening right now, I'm sure many of them are British citizens. One point I wanna make quickly here is the fact that the United States has no uh, financial motive to drop this case because the US case is being funded by the UK taxpayer. Meanwhile, Julian Assange has to pay for his own defense. So. I just wanted to make that point that this is all being funded by the UK taxpayer and uh, this needs to end. And I would encourage everybody to take the necessary steps to call on their local representatives, their MPs to, to advocate for Assange's freedom. Every single major civil liberties and human rights organization and journalistic organization around the world is calling for his immediate release. And it's now on us to ensure human rights and press freedom is upheld around the world. Thank you. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you very much for that, uh, Taylor. And what a good point to end that segment on because freedom of speech, truth from your government, release of official accurate statistics, these are all things that of course, during the COVID uh, pandemic and the vaccine vaccination policy, we have seen the government doing the exact opposite information's withheld or information is put out in a very selective and biased way. And clearly this is being done in order to deceive the population. So we're, we're living in very bad times. Let's bring on um, Debbie Evans, who has been consistently holding the, uh, the UK's MHRA to account. Debbie, thank you very much for joining us today. Um, you've been very pleased with the reaction of UK column viewers who've been onto YouTube viewing the MHRA's board meetings to see for themselves what they have to say. Uh, I'll just pop this up on screen. We've got the viewing figures here, over 4,000 now. That's a very big difference from the some 60 people that you alerted us to as the average sort of viewing figures. What, what would you like to say to those UK column viewers that have been uh, doing what is the right thing, and that is viewing the, the MHRA's own words themselves. Massive thank you. I mean, just a huge thank you, because they obviously know now that we're watching them. And 
you know, as of today, there were 1,470,106 reactions to this vaccine and 2,061 deaths. So, and I'd like to thank not on the BBC, uh, not the BBC as well, because they've also put the board meeting up on a separate link so people can make comments on it because obviously the MHRA board meeting, you can't make comments. That's not to say don't click into the original as well because please do because we need to carry on getting those views up and up and up. So a million thanks to everybody. Debbie, thank you very much for that. Now, you've been having a very close look at June Rain and what she said on the subject of pharmaceutical adverse reactions, vaccine adverse reactions. And uh, you came across this uh, clip, which we're going to show a very short section of it. It's dated the 27th of March 2013, and it's June Rain talking to the European Medicines Agency. Uh, let's just have a little listen to this clip and then please take us through what you think the important uh, subjects are. Sorry. There's no one in this room that doesn't know the enormous benefits that medicines bring to society. But no effective medicine is without risk. And you might think back to the Commission's estimates to the burden of harm from adverse drug reactions. Their own estimate was that 5% of all hospital admissions are due to adverse drug reactions. 5% of hospital patients experience one. And ADRs are the fifth commonest cause of hospital deaths. The overall estimate, the ballpark estimate, was that almost 200,000 lives are lost every year in Europe as a result of adverse drug reactions. And that came to a total societal cost of 79 billion euros. The important issue, I think, for us to keep our minds focused on is that a sizable proportion of these are preventable. There was one study in the UK that showed about two-thirds were presentable. There was one from Germany quite recently that said around 20%. So the sum total of the efforts we're here today to discuss could make a huge impact on that toll. So I think we're all united in the idea that we need robust and efficient systems to identify and manage risk and communicate about it to all who use medicines. And I think it's good to actually refocus on the survey, the independent survey that told us what the current systems are like. It's five or six years ago now, but it is worth reflecting. And it was an independent survey that gave us a list, a whole range of deficiencies. It told us that there was a lack of clear roles and responsibilities. It told us that decision-making at times can be very slow. It told us that there are low levels of transparency across the EU. It said that there was a lack of proportionate monitoring by all stakeholders and duplication of effort. And lastly, and probably most important of all, that there was a lack of inclusiveness of all the stakeholders. So we stakeholders are all here today to reflect on these things. Four months to go, an enormous amount is expected of all of us. And I think we all agree that EU citizens, well, we owe it to them to deliver. So you, you laughed at the end there, Mike. We, we owe it to EU citizens, of course, in uh, uh, 
2013, when June Rain was making this uh, speech, she was playing to the EU audience. But Debbie, I want to say to you that out of all the things that she says, and they are pretty incredible, it's when she says that the societal cost is, is I think, 70 billion euros. It's not the cost in people injured or dying. That's not a cost. It's just how much money we've, we've lost. This is an outrageous and fraudulent system. Just give us a little bit of comment on the video itself. Well, I think the video speaks for itself, doesn't it? I mean, she said this in 2013. So quite clearly, she knows the statistics for adverse reactions. And it was 79 billion, uh, 70, uh, 79 billion euros, actually. And where are all these robust mechanisms? What have we learned since 2013? Because I can't see any robust mechanisms that are in place, as we're clearly finding out now. So I think the clip just speaks for itself. Maybe we ought to remind June Rain of what she said in 2013. Perhaps she's forgotten. Uh, I'm sure she hasn't forgotten, but um, she's certainly uh, very weasel worded as she goes through the system. We're just going to encourage people to watch those board meetings and they should be questioning the MHRA, June Rain Direct, and of course their MPs stay on the case and let's see whether we can get the truth about the vaccine adverse reactions out into the open. Um, but Debbie, you've also been looking at NHS England and... Uh, uh, we can pop this one on screen. We've just got a screenshot of their board meeting from the 27th of January. Now, as usual, you've done some really excellent analysis on this board meeting. I'm just going to bring it up very briefly on screen so that people can freeze the screen and see the detail. And you're allowing people to go to timestamps of interest to them. But I notice on the bottom of the um, slide that we have on screen at the moment, Amanda Pritchard, NHS Operations and uh, Priorities Planning Guidance 2022-2023 is talking about 2.3 billion in revenue, one and a half billion capital funding for equipment, beds and surgical hubs, 410 million for diagnostic services, including what it calls community diagnostic centres. This is all about the transformation of the NHS, which the public was never consulted about, but vast amounts of money being put forward. And if we go on to the, uh, this section from minute 10 through to minute uh, 28, uh, at the bottom it says, currently there are 304,000 patients who have waited for over 52 weeks for their care and another 21,000 who have waited over 104 weeks. This is a system being destroyed. I'm not going to say it's collapsing because there's intent in the destruction. And the last uh, segment here, uh, the thing that jumped out at me is that they're talking about virtual wards, care in homes, vaccines and therapeutics, capturing real-time data, and staff being able to work flexibly. Um, just very quick, quickly, Debbie, what is the NHS up to here? This is, this is an NHS which is unrecognisable to most people. Destroyed, isn't it? It's completely destroyed. And, and you know, at these board meetings, if you want to go and have a look at your own hospital, your own hospital will have its own board meeting and you can view that as well. We need to be looking in at these board meetings. I don't know if NHS staff are aware that they have an electronic staff record that keeps tabs on what they're doing and 
whether they've had uh, an injection or not. I don't know if they're aware of it, but clearly it's in that board meeting. And also they describe the MRNA as a cargo delivery system. It's a very enlightening board meeting. And uh, I would advise everybody just to go and have a look and, and click in. And let, again, let them know that you're watching the dismantling of the NHS as we knew it. You know, it's gone, Brian. It's, it's just gone. It's, it's devastating. Gone. It's gone, but what we need is thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people in UK now to realise the deceit that's been done by successive governments. And people really need to be laying down the law to the politicians that uh, this is, well, what do we say? Not acceptable behaviour. Um, now, I know that you've also been challenging the um, Commission on Human Medicines with regard to vaccine safety. We're gonna save that um, for another day and uh, move on. But I just wanted to bring that to viewers' attention. This is all the work that Debbie Evans is doing. Uh, if she can do it, there are many, many people out there watching the UK column who can also take this reasonable, but very effective act, um, action in challenging the government and its agencies. So Debbie, thank you very much for that. Okay, if you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to UK Column, uh, sorry, community.ukcolumn.org uh, and there are options to help us out there. Uh, also, if you would like to share our material on the various platforms, that would be of great help as well. Uh, or if shop.ukcolumn.org is the URL if you'd like to pick up something uh, with the logo on it. Indeed, okay. Well, we're moving on to the subject of Ukraine and uh, just to take us there, we had a very interesting, <clears throat> excuse me, very interesting email which came into the UK column on the subject of mortgages. Now, Debbie Evans had brought up the subject that she thought it was likely that there could be some problems with your mortgage if you simply had Ukrainians to stay in your house. However, we received this email. You brought up the subject of mortgages on Monday. I work as a mortgage advisor for a big lender. And the process is that you can give over your property to a Ukrainian in full or provide rooms without doing the normal consent to lease checks that we would normally do. It will not affect the mortgage at all. Thanks for your great work. And then there was a second email which came in as a result of a prompt uh, from Debbie. These rules are only for Ukrainian refugees and in, normal um, and in normal times, a customer who wishes to let their property needs to get permission. No permission is required for mortgage customers to let their property to, Ukra to Ukrainians. Hope this helps. And the point that, of course, uh, uh, Debbie was bringing forward and Nick himself was that uh, it appears that anything is possible if, you, if you're Ukrainian. No checks on who you are as a Ukrainian but we can modify mortgage arrangements to enable um, this to take place. It's pretty incredible, Mike. Yes. Well, of course, uh, Russian forces now apparently getting close to taking uh, Mariupol. Um, and uh, many people have written and pointed out that this is important because it's the headquarters of the Azov battalions. Uh, and uh, and it's, of course, the Azov battalions have been uh, keeping people effectively prisoner in uh, Mariupol uh, act, using them as human shields and so on. Uh, and then, of course, we've seen the various headlines about uh, bombings of hospitals and schools and other things. Uh, but in the meantime, despite all the uh, warfare that's been going on, the negotiations have been continuing. So here's Tass 
uh, saying talks between Russian and Ukrainian delegations lasted one and a half hours. Well, in fact, that is a bit of a pessimistic headline because uh, that was the main delegations uh, that were speaking uh, a couple of days ago uh, for one and a half hours. They then uh, broke up for uh, sort of group discussions, uh, working groups, uh, and that lasted all, all day. So um, the negotiations continuing. But in the meantime, uh, this is what uh, Zelensky had to say. Uh, I explained to all negotiating groups, when you talk about these amendments, uh, and they can be historic, we eventually will have to hold a referendum. So he, he's very much saying that uh, once there's an outcome, if there's an outcome from these negotiations, it will have to be put to the Ukrainian people. Uh, the Russians seem to be okay with that because there's Dmitry Peskov, uh, the uh, Kremlin spokesperson, saying uh, uh, Ukraine is a sovereign state and it can and should have some domestic political procedures for these kinds of things. Um, but uh, Zelensky then uh, was quoted in uh, Ukraine form, the uh, news, uh, Ukrainian news outlet saying, uh, Ukraine will not be able to fulfill uh, the ultimatum. This is uh, the requirement over NATO membership. will not be able to physically, how can this be done? We must all be annihilated. Uh, then their ultimatum will be fulfilled automatically. For example, they say, give us Kharkiv, give us Mariupol, give us Kiev. Uh, neither the residents of Kharkiv nor the residents of Mariupol nor the residents of Kiev nor the president will be able to do that. Uh, we see this even in uh, occupied towns. Uh, well, okay, but uh, uh, maybe if the Azov brigades weren't being quite so draconian, uh, there might be some progress there as well. And then in this particular article, uh, the same outlets quoting Zelensky again, saying we need to calm down. Okay, uh, give us other security guarantees. If we can't join uh, NATO, uh, then there need to be other guarantors of security. Uh, and of, uh, unfortunately, uh, they can't give us 100% NATO membership, uh, but are ready to do things uh, that the Alliance would have to do if we were a member of the Alliance. And I think that's normal compromise. So the Polish uh, uh, ambassador to the United States uh, was speaking on CNN uh, on Monday. And he seemed to be a bit confused about the situation. So he talked about a preliminary concept uh, that there's a peacekeeping mission in Ukraine to stop Russian aggression. Uh, but he said, Polish troops, we're willing and ready to help the Ukrainians as much as possible within the framework of NATO cooperation to defend themselves. Uh, we're not talking about a possible escalation and possible engagement of NATO troops uh, in Ukraine, but uh, Poland is a member of NATO, isn't it? So therefore they would be NATO troops. Uh, if Poland were to uh, go and run some kind of peacekeeping exercise. But anyway, he said, uh, we can't take any position. All such decisions, no matter how radical they are, seem to be uh, have to be taken on uh, by all NATO members. We should be also discussing numerous possibilities of defending ourselves, not only Ukraine. Well, um, let's move on then to uh, Igor Konoshenkov, uh, who's a uh, Russian defense spokesperson, and he was talking about uh, the uh, hypersonic uh, missiles, Brian, that you were discussing or we were discussing on Monday's program. And he seemed to have the same view that you were expressing. Anyway, the combat use of the uh, air launch missile system has confirmed its effectiveness in destroying highly protected special enemy targets. Strikes by this air launch missile system at military infrastructure facilities of Ukraine during the special military operation will continue. But they were very pleased with the uh, with the outcome uh, in the sense. Well, I mean, I, well, I, I was just going to say, whilst we wouldn't want anybody firing missiles at anybody else, what's happening here is normal. That countries test their weapon systems 
out. So, so there's nothing special happening here except the missile is special. Well, and it's not unique to, to Russia. If yeah. it's, but uh, let's just have a look at Biden's response to that because I thought it was quite uh, hilarious. It's a consequential weapon. Uh, it doesn't make much of a difference, except it's almost impossible to stop it. So it makes a big difference. So it is fairly consequential, <laughs> but it doesn't make a difference. Yeah. So what goes through his mind, I'm not entirely sure. But anyway, in the meantime, uh, Britain has decided to get rid of uh, lots of uh, medical supplies. So it's provided over 3.7 million items of medical supplies to Ukraine is what the uh, graphic that the UK government was pushing out. Uh, excitedly says, items including vital medicines, wound packs, intensive care equipment donated by NHS England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland have been flown to the region over the past three weeks. Uh, so 3,000 adult resuscitators, 160,000 wound care packs, 300,000 sterile needles, 32,000 packs of bandages, 1,600 pieces of equipment for ventilators and 54,000 cannulas. 220,000 packs of medicines, around 2.3 million doses, including antibiotics and painkillers. Uh, well, people can't get access to that kind of gear uh, at the, in the NHS. At the well, moment, we've just but... demonstrated it with people waiting 104 weeks in order to get treatment in the NHS. But suddenly, wow, we've got the ability to put all of the, uh, these medical supplies to Ukraine. Uh, but of course, we know those supplies are going to be needed because UK is also pushing in the weapons and munitions to ensure the fighting goes on as long as possible. It's um, the hypocrisy. It's, yeah. yeah. What do you say? Well, I just wanted to pick up on the types of things that the media has been saying. The Guardian here with the classic Russia-Ukraine war, what we know on day 27 of the invasion. Uh, it says Zelensky urges direct talks with Russian president amid US fears Moscow could order chemical weapon attack. So where has this come from? It's it's come out of nowhere, but it's very emotive. It's like the killing of babies. This is something that can be pinned on the Russians, and then that uses an excuse that the whole nature of the conflict changes. So this has come from The Guardian. Well, who was the journalist? I always like to look. Let's bring her on screen. It's Samantha Lock, and uh, this is from her LinkedIn page. If you can't read what she actually says about herself, she says this, Samantha Lock, Guardian reporter, armchair detective, an amateur sleuth, and a small ginger ninja. Are we supposed to take the Guardian seriously anymore? Uh, she sat in her armchair, is making accusations that the Russians are going to use chemical weapons. Where's the evidence? There is none. Indeed. There is none. Meanwhile, we've got uh, the BBC uh, manipulating and the propaganda. This is part of an article that they pushed out in the last couple of days. It says, uh, Mariupol is home to a Ukrainian militia unit called the Azov Brigade, named after the Sea of Azov, which links Mariupol to the rest of the Black Sea. The Azov Brigade contains far-right extremists, including neo-Nazis, although they form only the tiniest fraction of the fighting forces. Um, this has been a useful propaganda tool for Moscow, giving it a pretext for telling Russia's population that the young men is sent to fight in Ukraine are there to rid their neighbors of neo-Nazis. So here's the BBC supporting neo-Nazis by attempting to play down the actual strength of these people into the tiniest proportion. And, uh, and let's just bring up the little banner on the screen because people can freeze this and 
do what they like with it. But essentially, the BBC spinning the the truth to support neo-Nazis propaganda. I think this is utterly outrageous, but it is the BBC. And uh, what's the West been doing? Well, this is an interesting little story. Veterans Today picked up on the fact that a famous Canadian sniper went off to Ukraine, apparently at invitation of the country's President Zelensky. Uh, This was a sniper at one point held the world record for the longest uh, range sniper kill. So he's something of a sniper celebrity. Uh, Here was the sun crowing, world's most fearsome sniper vows. I won't hesitate to squeeze the trigger. So the sun just, what can you say? The sun just wanting more death. There's nothing else for it. But it hasn't gone quite like that because what, what is now appearing on social media, at least, is the fact that this sniper has died in the fighting at Maripol. So here it is, uh, breaking famous Canadian sniper Wally Dead. Uh, Italian, Chinese and Russian sources confirm that Russians have killed the famous Canadian sniper who's also the deadliest in the world. So how terrible for a UK newspaper to be prompting mercenaries, snipers, to go and kill whoever they want to. And presumably he was going out there because he missed the fun of his previous kills. Mm. Uh, okay, well, let's uh, bring Liz Truss on because she was tweeting this out uh, earlier. Uh, good to speak to Ukrainian Foreign Minister Dmitry Kuleba. Uh, we discussed how the UK, alongside G7 allies and partners, will increase economic pressure against Putin's regime. We will not stop in our mission to cut off funds for uh, Russia's brutal war machine. Um, well, my question is, was she sure she was speaking to the Russian Foreign Minister? Uh, because unfortunately, Ben Wallace wasn't sure that he was speaking to the uh, Ukrainian Prime Minister. Um, and uh, well, um, many people may have seen these two little clips, but I think it's worth uh, listening to them and, and just getting an idea of what he, uh, or his response to this. Now, so he was, uh, he thought he was speaking to uh, Denis uh, Shamhal, uh, Shmihal, I'm not quite sure how you pronounce that, uh, the Ukrainian's Prime Minister. Uh, and uh, well, this is the first of two short clips. Good afternoon, this is Defence Secretary's Office. Can I just check who you've got on the line, please? Yes, sure. We will just, we are on the line. Do you hear me? Thank you. Yeah, I can hear you loud uh, and clear. If yeah. you just bear with us while the Defence Secretary joins, yes. thank you. Yeah, we will be, we will switch on our camera when we will be, when we will see. Understood. No problem. Thank mm-hmm. you. Hello. Hello. How are you there? I'm fine. I'm in Poland. Oh, okay. Yes, I know. We would like to continue the nuclear program in order to protect ourselves from Russia. It's uh, a difficult question, but we think to start it. Okay. But do you think, I mean, I think more than being neutral, Russia would really hate that. For sure. We, are, we, are know, this. we, we know this. Of course, but it is yeah. one of the questions that we are in- interested. But if you could help yeah. us in this uh, regard, it would be really, really important. Okay, well, look, I, 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 Mr. Prime Minister, on all those bigger questions, I think those are questions that I need to speak to my Prime Minister 
the, the principle is we will support Ukraine as our friend in the choices you make. So the call was set up by uh, two Russians, uh, Vladimir Kuznetsov and Alexei uh, Stolyarov. Um, and uh, well, it's garnered quite a response from the UK government, from Ben Wallace himself. Um, now, th these two are being uh, labelled as, uh, you know, people that are working agents of Vladimir Putin and his government. Uh, but uh, what were your thoughts on the first, his reaction to the... Uh, the nuclear question? Well, it was watching his facial expression because I, I sensed a horror went through him. And then he's looking up, he doesn't quite know what to say, and then he responds. So there's some uh, comments which are saying that these clips are fabricated, but his reaction to that particular question, um, to me, suggests that what was said to him was real, what he was asked about was real. But it was the second question which was actually much more interesting. So just listen to this. Well, I also would like to request provide uh, never NLAW anti-tank weapons since those delivered earlier um, often fail, so that was the problems for our country. Our, ours have, I don't think ours have failed. I've got the details of ours. We've given you over 4,000. We've got more coming. Yeah, right. We're, ru we're running out of our own. But I, I speak to uh, Minister Reznikov or text him every day. Um, so you'll perhaps be unsurprised to know that the uh, UK government is trying to persuade YouTube to take those two videos down. Um, this was uh, Ben Wallace's uh, response to it. Uh, things must be going bad for the Kremlin that they're now resorting to pranks and video fakes, not the actions of a confident government. But then again, after the Salisbury Cathedral sightseeing story, anything is possible. So that was his response. But look, Brian... Uh, the claim there were claims that the videos have been, uh, you know, swapped, you know, edited heavily and so on. But there was no evidence in that clip that I could see of any particular e edits. That looked like a, a an answer that he was giving there, and it gave away quite a lot. Four thousand anti tank weapons already, which there's, is a vast amount. Yes, vast amount of sending munitions. more. Yeah, uh, and and he said quite clearly that that has put the UK stockpiles at risk. And yeah. is, is, and is I, that unprecedented? Well, I'm, I'm going to say I don't know. I don't know the actual figures. Could I believe that if 4,000 missiles were shifted in a very short space of time, that would lead to shortages in the war stocks? Yes, I could. I could believe that. Um, so the Mail uh, had this headline today. Uh, it's, uh, we have loads of missiles, they said. Anger at spliced Russian prankster video. Uh, claiming UK is running out of anti-tank missiles. As sources say, Ben Wallace's comments were edited and pretty Patel's office is blamed for passing the call onto the Ministry of Defence. So what they're suggesting is that uh, the, the, these two events uh, began by trying to contact Pretty Patel uh, and that the, they were then passed through to the Ministry of Defence when Pretty Patel decided that they weren't uh, worth speaking to. Uh, but uh, it was the quote at the bottom, if you just put that back on screen for a second, please. Uh, so the whole video has not only been spliced, it's been uh, cut. Uh, we're not out of, w of uh, NLAWs. 
It's just rubbish, a senior official told Mail Online today. We've got loads. We make them in Belfast. So which official? That's my first question. Who is making this statement? You know, it could be anybody. It could uh, be another prankster, possibly. It could be. So, uh, I mean, what do we say? Ben Wallace was caught, I think, red-handed there without question. Right. Well, what it does do is, is put the donation of those medical supplies in... Context. In, in context, because if you're pumping in weapons on that scale, what are you after? You're after a bloody conflict, which is going to go on for months. So the British government clearly wants more Ukrainians killed, more Russians to die. They're interested in the battle. They're not interested in saving people and protecting them from, from the conflict. Right. Well, I just wanted to see whether we could take our audience uh, through a little bit of the background, if we've got the conflict in Ukraine, who's been active in helping to stir the pot? And probably a good place to start is BBC Media Action. Now, we've already shown in earlier uh, UK column news programmes that uh, BBC Media Action has been fully active in Ukraine. It has set up a new transformed Ukrainian state uh, media. And this means that, of course, anything that's being reported out of uh, Ukraine has got the BBC brand on it. So is it going to criticise the UK government? Is it going to be difficult for the government in the UK? Of course not, because the BBC is going to make sure that only the right information comes across. But let's go back here to uh, November 2012. And what I want to demonstrate here is this is the close relationship between the so-called charity BBC Media Action and the government, in this case, the Department for International Development. And this was a review that uh, was taking place to see how well BBC Media Action had done in reg with regard to the global grants that it had received. Um, so we just take a little bit of the detail out of this. Uh, what support is the UK providing? The UK is providing funding of 89.8 million over five years to BBC Media Action. It's a pretty good charity, Mike, isn't yes. it? Yes. Uh, funding is managed by the, quote, policy division of DFID. So you can see straight away that this is nothing to do with the charity. This is a very devious BBC department, which has uh, got in doing its work. We'll see more about what it's doing. Um, here we are. The global grant is expected to reach over 200 million people in, quote, 14 target countries. That's a nice expression, isn't it? We're going to target countries with the brand of the BBC, with, with media and communications outputs that contribute to creating more accountable state society relations and governments. We've just demonstrated that we can't trust the UK government, but the same system that is failing here in UK is going to be imposed on other countries. And who gave the UK government the mandate to go and do these things in the first place? Well, nobody gave them the mandate. Nobody gave the BBC the mandate. Have a look at the bottom here. Uh, a strengthened evidence base on the role of media and communication in democratic development, including the role of donor support. This is a political agenda. You shouldn't be able to be a charity and, and politically active. Those are the rules about charities, but BBC Media Action, clearly different. And if we go on through, we get a bit more detail here because we now see that what, what they're involved with in respect of India, at least, is behavioural change. So this is where they're now 
encouraging women to practice specific behaviors all to do with childbirth and bringing up children, breastfeeding. Uh, the BBC is in there because these mothers need the BBC to help it. So here I've highlighted the fact that we can see back in 2012, BBC Media Action is using applied political psychology to uh, change the behavior of those target countries and their populations. Very devious, never uh, discussed in public for the UK population, but this is what they're up to. And remember, uh, BBC Media Action has been doing its dirty work in Ukraine. Uh, here's the end of it. So just to make sure that we know that the Department of International Development is uh, fully involved. So the review was conducted and it gives us all the details. Results have been discussed and agreed with senior staff and management at BBC Media Action and DFID. And this was uh, Lady Maggie Carroll and the team. So is it a news outlet or is this a government department? I think it's a government department. Now, let's uh, have a look back in time again. And this is the 15th September 2010. And it was William Hague who was giving a speech at Lincoln's Inn in London. And I've just taken some of the uh, words that came out of his mouth. And let's think about what he said then versus what we see in Ukraine now. He said, I'm grateful to Lincoln's Inn for hosting this event, to Colonel Hills for his kind words of introduction, and to all of you for attending uh, to hear me speak about the place of values in Britain's foreign policy. What values are those, Mike? Do you think it's supplying all those weapons to keep the conflict going? Um, Possibly. Yes. Our government has set a clear direction in foreign policy. First and foremost, it will advance British security and prosperity. So whatever we see happening in Ukraine, this man at least was saying what comes first is British security and prosperity. Could it be arms sales? Could that be the prosperous uh, part of that particular statement? Uh, he went on, he said there's broad agreement across society and politics that Britain should stand for democratic freedom, for universal human rights and for the rule of law. But there has not been agreement about how these should be reflected in foreign policy or confidence that they've been consistently upheld by successive government. Too right, because we've been torturing people. We've had rendition flights. We fought in uh, Iraq on the lie of weapons of mass destruction. So why should anybody have confidence in the government or what it says? He said this, we know that we have to promote our values with conviction and determination, but in ways that are suited to the, quote, grain of the other societies we are dealing with, particularly in fragile or post-conflict states. This is veiled language saying that it's going to be our values and requirements that dominate. And if we're in a post-conflict state or a fragile state, we've got to do it in a way that they don't really understand what's happening. It's very callous, devious language. Uh, this quote, first and foremost, as a democratic country, we must have a foreign policy based on values as an extension of our identity as a society. Well, what is our identity at the moment? But saying uh, based on values, that's like, you know, when people say the word reasons, I mean, it, what does that mean? Values? Who's, what values? What, what are the values that he's talking about? It's well, not defined. I'm going to say 
we could define them as certainly not the values of the wider population, because I think if we had a vote tomorrow whether we should be pumping weapons into Ukraine, I don't think the population would be for it. Who is we? Who is our? This is the key thing. This is the deep state, the banking circles that come up with the finance. But uh, let's just do a couple more. Second, uh, he says at a particular point, we have a strategic interest in promoting our values, which form the essential framework for the pursuit of our security and prosperity. So everything is for the benefit of UK. It's not to do with the benefit of the state itself. Uh, and another paragraph, third, it actually said, third, we will seek to influence others through our soft power and membership of international institutions and by being an inspiring example of a society that upholds human rights and democracy. And of course, BBC Media Action is a perfect demonstration of soft power. It looks soft, but actually it's doing a very powerful job for the uh, political elite. He goes on, he said, we'll encourage the EU to use its collective weight in the world to promote human rights and democracy with the many levers at its disposal. The EU's enlargement to the South and the East, a policy that has cross-party support has done much to strengthen democracy and the rule of law across Europe. Do we think that includes Ukraine? I would say so, yeah. Mike, yeah. And this one, the enlargement process continues to act as a powerful catalyst for progress in these areas. So we will continue to champion the, the cause of a wider European Union. We will continue to work towards an armed trade treaty to reduce the risk that defence exports are used to fuel conflict, violate human rights and undermine development. Establishing global standards for their sale will reduce the harm caused by the flow of arms to fragile regions and will benefit British industry. Mm. This tells us exactly what the policy is uh, in Ukraine. It's get the weapons in there and get the profits out. And if we just follow through, uh, here's DF, uh, the Department for International Development working in Ukraine. So this is some detail from 2014 to 2016. And uh, if we get into this, uh, we can see details of what they're doing. And one of the key things is apparently Britain is teaching them how not to be corrupt. Is that possible? No. No. And uh, who is the UK government going to be working with? Well, let's see. The World Bank the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, the International Monetary Fund. And we have to say, of course, with all of these big funding de deals, there's strings attached. So this is about profits, munitions, um, and uh, locking the Ukrainians into the banking system. And we, we know that from the document itself, because it says here in this pa paragraph, ultimately value for money, VFM, depends on whether the prospects for genuine and sustainable economic and government's re reform improve through the government of Ukraine meeting the conditions for IMF and other macroeconomic support programs as a result of our assistance. So the money goes in, do what we say, and if you meet our conditions, what? We're in control of Ukraine, yes. effectively. So this one, I think, really starts to bring it home. This has come from the um, British Embassy uh, um, itself. 
And uh, I've labeled it innocent Ukrainians lambs for the UK driven slaughter. We've got a UK program of assistance to Ukraine in 2018, uh, 19. Um, it uh, said this, UK, Ukraine remains a significant priority with strategic importance for the long-term security, stability and prosperity of the European continent and for UK interests. Our support to Ukraine increased following the crisis in 2014, which saw Ukrainians demand reform and an end to corruption during the revolution of dignity. This was followed by Russia's illegal annexation of Crimea and the instigation of the ongoing conflict in East Ukraine. In 2018-19, our assistance package builds on previous year's uh, support to help Ukraine create an accountable and prosperous state with the government able to make essential reforms, building its resilience to external aggression and destabilization, supported by a, a united inter international community. Um, so essentially, the more you read of this, the more you can see that the British government has got into the grain of Ukraine and is now controlling uh, what's actually happening. But have a look at how the Ukrainian sheep have been fattened up because what we're looking at is gifts of money and aid. And these are some of the sources, the Conflict Stability and Security Fund, the Good Governance Fund, the Foreign and Commonwealth Office's Bilateral Programme Fund, DFID's Humanitarian Fund and British Council funding. And you've got some budgets there, 14 million, 11 million, 8 million. So these sums of money all designed to help take control of the, UK, the Ukrainian government and, uh, and ultimately control the population. Who's in charge of this at the moment? Well, this gentleman, Thomas Drew, uh, seems to be the main man. He's gone from McKinsey, a consultancy company, to director general of the, uh, of the FCDO and his department lead on Russia and Ukraine. And this is where it gets interesting. If you look at his CV, um, he was involved uh, with the Foreign and Commonwealth Office's EU Enlargement and Southeast Group. Mm. So was this the EU pushing its military might east? Clearly, I think. And uh, here's the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office sliding in the propaganda, turning back the clock, the Kremlin's war on truth, Ukraine a choice between right and wrong. So let's put this in context. We've got the poor Ukrainians. Uh, what's happened is that uh, the BBC have taken control of their national media. And of course, the funders for the BBC Media Action, we've consistently shown uh, US State Department, UK government, other overseas governments, including Canada. Um, so this is soft power and it includes behavior change. Uh, we've got the Department of Inter International Development, or we did have, pumping in more soft power with gifts, money, and what I've called trinkets. We've now got the up-to-date uh, programme running from the UK government, and now we're into major international banking in order to lock down the population. We've got the EU putting in the weapons. And what does the EU want to do? Expand its military empire to the southeast. And this is the bit which is really obscene. We've now got the UK government pumping in the weapons in order to ensure that the uh, bloodshed increases. So 
it's uh, yeah, it's difficult to know what to uh, say because ultimately the people dying, of course, are not just Russians, they're Ukrainians, but the UK has been fully behind this disastrous situation. And uh, the irony is that there's been a big punch up in the new FCDO uh, because apparently the IT systems are not working and the DFID staff who are interested in uh, aid to countries uh, can't communicate properly with the Foreign Commonwealth Office staff. Here's another report from the Guardian. Foreign Office IT issues hampering UK's response to the UK crisis is described as chaos. And there's another report here from Public Technology. So I think we will put it to our audience very strongly that if we look at the evidence, it's been the UK government which has been helping to destabilise Ukraine and certainly to ramp up antagonism with the Russians in the East. Um, well, the question on our lips always is, Brian, who is setting the policy? And uh, well, I'm sure we could have a conversation about the UK, but let's just uh, have a look at, at this from Switzerland. Uh, so this is a Swiss uh, online newspaper, um, and they were speaking to a Swiss security expert and uh, Swiss military, Swiss army colonel, uh, Jacques Baud. Um, and so he was talking about the uh, Ukrainian crisis, uh, and uh, he was talking about the Russian policies with respect to UK, Ukraine, but also those of the US and NATO. Um, so he compared Biden's uh, intentions uh, in the crisis to George W. Bush's uh, lies to justify war in Iraq. Let's just bring a quote up on screen. Uh, in relation to Ukraine, he said Blinken did exactly the same as, as, as George W. Bush's administration. You can tell by the fact that no one from the CIA has commented on it. U.S. analysts have noticed that the intelligence services have not made an appearance in this connection. Everything Blinken said came from a group that he had formed himself within his department, a so-called Tiger Team. So he has set up this group inside the Department of Defense uh, and, and so on, and they're calling it the Tiger Team. Um, we'll go on. He goes on to say, scenarios have been presented to us are not based on intelligence. So-called experts have invented a certain scenario with a political agenda. So the rumor arose that the Russians would attack. Uh, Joe Biden said he knew the Russians would attack on February the 16th. When asked how he knew, he replied that the U.S. had good intelligence capabilities. He made no mention of the CIA or national intelligence. Now, if you remember, they were supposed to, the Russians were supposed to attack at 10 a.m. on that particular Wednesday in February, uh, and it didn't actually happen. What, what did happen was, uh, he said, uh, on this day, we see an extreme increase in ceasefire violations by the Ukrainian military along the ceasefire line, uh, the so-called line of contact. Uh, and uh, so uh, he said, well, that's, that's what he said. So basically, uh, there was incitement there, Brian, to, to add on to what you've just been saying. On the ground, uh, there, was there was clear incitement by the Ukrainian Azov brigades and others uh, in the Donbass, uh, effectively from what he is saying, uh, you know, Putin was drawn into this by uh, some coordinated comments by the Western, by Western leadership, but also uh, events on the ground. Yeah, and he was damned if he did and damned if he didn't, because national security implications for the Russians were absolutely critical. Um, it's, it's, it's tragic. I'll just say that uh, we've done a lot of reporting about what's gone wrong in Ukraine, and we've talked about what's happening with the Russians. We're really going to emphasize today that 
do we feel for the Ukrainian people? Yes, we do. But the Ukrainian people need to understand how they have been manipulated by the West in order to create the present situation. And of course, UK is very happy because we're going to be making profit off those weapon systems. Um, so tomorrow, uh, if we put this one up on screen, tomorrow is the anniversary of uh, the NATO attack uh, on uh, Yugoslavia in 1999. Um, so this is this graphic is from the Belgrade Forum on the World of Equals, uh, and they're marking tomorrow, remembering this day back in 1999 when the NATO alliance's illegal and criminal aggression against the Federal Republic of Yugoslavia began. Um, the aggression was the first war in European soil waged since the end of the Second World War, they say, uh, as the bombs and cruise missiles thrown by the most powerful military machinery in the history of civilization were busy destroying a small European country. They also destroyed the European and global security system based on, on the UN Charter, the USCE Final Act and the Paris Charter. To this day, Europe and the world will suffer the severe consequences of that destruction in the process NATO allied with the so-called KLA, a separatist terrorist formation uh, as its infantry wing, uh, thus boosting separatism and terrorism. Over the course of this aggression, NATO carried out, now let's just put this on screen, over the course of this aggression, NATO carried out 2,300 airstrikes on 995 facilities around the country, and its 1,150 fighter planes launched some 420,000 projectiles with the total mass of 22,000 tons, including, by the way, 15 tons of depleted uranium weapons, uh, 4,000 casualties, 3,000 civilians, uh, 1,031 members of the army and the police, 89 children were killed. In total, more than 12,000 people were wounded, 6,000 civilians, including 2,700 children and 5,173 soldiers and police officers. 25 people are still listed as missing. Uh, so let's have uh, Alexander Vucic. Uh, the Serbian president, he said, I believe Serbia must not join NATO. Uh, he was speaking about this, uh, but he's speaking in general about not joining NATO. Serbia is a free country and a military, militarily neutral country. Serbia will be defending its land and sky on its own. But let me tell you something, our duty is to forgive and our duty is not to forget. We have no right to forget this. Uh, we will get far stronger. Uh, than we were in those days uh, when the irresponsible, the arrogant and the presumptuous were bombing us and waging war, uh, a war of aggression against us and our country. Uh, and I think those are fair enough words, Brian, and uh, uh, really what's going on uh, now should be seen in that context. We are in no position to criticise anyone from taking action. Absolutely. Um, in the meantime, then, NATO uh, tomorrow will be today, well, it begins today, but tomorrow is the main event, uh, is holding an extraordinary summit of NATO heads of state and government. Boris will be at it, uh, and uh, Joe Biden will be there as well. Uh, we're looking at additional troop uh, posture adjustments, um, is what the US government is saying. And so at the summit, we expect NATO leaders to review the alliance's current deterrent and defensive force posture, uh, especially in light of the deteriorating security environment caused by Russia's unprovoked and unjustified further invasion of Ukraine. Well, in the meantime, of course, uh, the Arctic drills that we talked about uh, last week continue. Uh, this is Reuters reporting this. Uh, NATO Arctic drills take place on new significance after Russia invasion of uh, Ukraine. Uh, and so they're saying that the enemy in this exercise is fictional, uh, but according to the article, the parallels to what a future conflict in the region could look like are unmistakable. 
So there's 30,000 troops, 27 countries taking part, 3,000 US Marines, including 50 ships, 200 aircraft of all types. Uh, and of course, uh, the uh, HMS Prince of Wales is there. Uh, and uh, well, more than 2,300 Swedish and Finnish troops also taking part. And I think in the context of the meetings that we were reporting, uh, Brian, uh, prior to the uh, Ukrainian conflict beginning between Boris Johnson, Ben Wallace, and uh, Liz Truss and the Swedish and foreign, foreign uh, sorry, Swedish and Finnish counterparts uh, with respect to the possibility of Sweden and Finland joining NATO uh, as members. Uh, I, I would just wonder what you think about that in that context. Well, deliberately provocative is uh, for the to the Russians uh, is how I would see it. But okay. at a time when you may want to calm the situation down, you, you're doing something which you know will antagonize. Yes. Um, so then let's have a look at Stars and Stripes. And their headline here is US poised to have three armored brigades in Europe uh, at once as troop numbers climb. Uh, and so what they're saying is that uh, 12,000 troops uh, will be deployed to, to Europe for the first time in years. Uh, so uh, weaponry belonging to the 3rd Armored Brigade Combat Team, the 4th Infantry Division out of Fort Carson, Colorado, uh, will be sent to, parts, to ports in Denmark, Greece and the Netherlands. Soldiers are going to arrive in April. Uh, the US Army Europe and Africa uh, said in a statement this week and is reported in this article um, and so on. So uh, with the arrival of the Fort Carson unit, the total number of American servicemen operating in Europe is going to stand at over 100,000. And that number hasn't been seen since 2005. Um, 4,000 incoming Fort Carson soldiers are bringing with them 90 uh, Abrams tanks, 15 Paladins, 150 Bradley infantry fighting vehicles, and more than 1,000 tracked and 600 wheeled vehicles. So the United States uh, absolutely upgrading their presence in Europe. Yeah, but I'm, I'm going to suggest, Mike, we're, we're not going to see the Americans stepping up to fight the Russians. What will happen with these troops is they'll all be used for training and exercise purposes because the objective is, is to use the cannon fodder of the eastern states in order to get involved in these conflicts. Um, as, as the uh, McGregor, the American general, said on on Monday, that the America's got big problems in fulfilling its own recruiting targets with respect to the of the army, and in any case, there isn't the heavy lift capability to get the U.S. Um, military in, in the numbers that would be required for a major conflict. So a lot of this is posturing; it's very dangerous posturing. But the aim is that the fighting will always be done uh, by other parties. But nonetheless, it's going to have uh, what kind of impact on Russia? It's going to inflame the situation. So, yeah, we'll leave it there. Leave it there. Okay. Well, we'll say thank you very much to all our viewers and listeners wherever you are in the world. A very big thank you to people who've been taking out subscriptions with the UK column. Don't remember. <clears throat> don't forget if you do take out a subscription, uh, you can join our extra time, which many people enjoy. We try and. Uh, broad, broaden out the uh, discussion and often lighten the mood. So if you haven't experienced a UK column extra time, take out a subscription and join us. And uh, we'd like to say to people in the Ukraine, uh, whatever nationality you are, if you're involved in the fighting, uh, you are doing it largely as a result of the uh, behind the scenes actions of the UK 
and the US government alongside the EU. There's no question of this. Mm. So I think we can say not in our name. It's not happening in our name. We'll leave it there. Thank you very much for joining us. Bye-bye. All right.